Good evening. Good evening. Good evening, everyone. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. It is good to see all of y'all tonight. We are looking forward. Uh, y'all are going to be really proud. Pastor Kurt and I are actually going to finish something on time. <laughs> Don't get used to it. Yeah, uh, right. <laughs> so we said we were going to do Colossians in 10 weeks. And by golly, we're going to do it in 10 weeks. And um, I hope it has been a great journey uh, through the book with you. Uh, we have enjoyed it. And... Uh, Looking forward to what uh, God has for us in the uh, fall, which we don't know what that is yet, but we will let you know when we know for sure. Do something a little bit different tonight to kind of ease us into our study is a a form of a prayer is we're going to turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 21. Um, One of the challenges, if you were here when we did our study of the book of Revelation back a long time ago now... One of the challenges of the book is is overcoming this notion that the book of Revelation is primarily about the future. It's not. It is a it is a book about what God has done, is doing, and yes, certainly will do. But it's certainly more about what God has done and is doing in our midst right now. And there are these verses in it, in uh, the beginning of chapter 21 that kind of jump back and forth between the present and the future all kind of in the same passage but I thought this passage was good as we finish up Colossians tonight because it's clear the way the things that Paul is teaching about in Colossae uh, to the Colossians it's clear that the new Jerusalem is breaking into that community uh, then and there And it's a beautiful thing. And so let's bow our heads in prayer as we uh, pray through this passage together in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying look God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. In Jesus' name we pray and give thanks. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. We're going to try to finish tonight. We are going to finish tonight, I should say. Um, Last night, we had to. We're going to finish up chapter 3. We had this introduced to us in verses 12 through 16 about the new way Paul wants people to interact with each other based on a Christian ideal. The life in the church is different. People are going to relate to each other through the love and grace of Christ. It's very, very different. One of the tools I hope you always keep in your box when you study scripture 
is the understanding that the people that you read about in Scripture are not just average people. It's one of the first kind of mistakes that people make when they read Scripture. They just assume that the people you're reading about are just like you. They have the same thoughts, same culture, same language, same feelings. They're just like you. They're not. Uh, They never are. Now, it doesn't mean Scripture can't speak to all people. It certainly does. But you have to understand sort of the stamp of authenticity that God puts in his work. He revealed himself at a specific time, at a specific place, to specific people. And the more we understand that, the better we'll understand how his message applies to all people. So tonight, beginning in verse 18, we begin with a discussion about relationships between men and women, parents and children, between uh, owners and slaves. And so it's, it's a little different than what we're used to. And I need to very quickly just sort of outline uh, for our topic of conversation, there's three cultures that are dominating, right? We have the Jewish uh, culture, which is very ancient, coming from the East. You have Greek culture, which is very spread through Hellenism. It's, It's affecting most of the known world. And then you have Roman culture, which is kind of a hybrid. Uh, they've taken a lot from the Greeks, but they've also sort of added some elements of their own. So there's similarities, but also differences. And why is, why is Greek culture called Hellenistic culture? Because of the word Hellenes, um, which is a more proper term for all people that experience a Greek-speaking uh, culture, you know, live in palaces, live in cities. So you could be a Hellene and live in Alexandria, Egypt, for example. Um, so you're, you're still part of that culture, even though you're not Athenian or Carthaginian. Very good. Or, yeah. I knew so. y'all wanted to ask that question, so I asked it. Very good. <laughs> So real quick, the Romans treat women the worst of these three cultures. In Roman society, women really are decorations for the house. Uh, They don't even manage the house. That's primarily a slave's job. Uh, Women are for having sons and being seen at certain parties. So they really are wallflowers. Uh, Who was Julius Caesar's wife? Yeah, don't say Cleopatra. That's, uh, no, no. Um, yeah, we hardly know. I mean, she, she was a nobody. Um, she was just from the certain family that she was supposed to be from, show up at certain things, and he's gallivanting all over the world, chasing Cleopatras and everything else. Uh, Roman women are treated extremely poorly. There's no female senators. There's no female generals. None of that. So bottom of the barrel. The Greeks are not much better. Women do have uh, a little bit more social freedom, but they don't have any political freedom. They're, there's no leaders uh, that are women. They can be doctors. There's certain priesthoods available to women. But as, as distasteful it is to talk about, the Greeks had a very different kind of social, sexual structure than we're used to in society. Uh, homosexuality was widely practiced in Greek society. So generally you would marry a woman in order to have children. They say this. Um, but other than that, you were going to large parties and you were sleeping either with concubines or 
men, boys. Uh, so it, it's, it's a very disturbed culture. One of the things you have to appreciate as we read these things is that Christianity, based on these teachings, has so dramatically changed the way society is. We think it's the most natural thing in the world to love children, right? Everybody loves their children, except for they didn't in the first century. The practices of abortion, the practices of leaving children in exposure fields in Rome was widely practiced. Children are not as revered. Nobody builds a Disneyland for children in the ancient world. Kids, you know, with our generations, we think, oh, well, kids help with a farm. Not in a slave world, they don't. Kids take a long time to get productive. You know, when's... When's the age you were really helping your parents on the farm? I mean, really. Maybe nine, ten. Uh, by the time you're you know, a teenager in the ancient world, you're off on your own. You're, you're leaving. You're not staying. So you, we don't have large families in the ancient world, which you think they would. Uh, but the Greeks, on average, have two children. They don't have birth control. What are they doing? They're killing those children. They're exposing them in fields. So it's a very, very different world. Um, one step beyond that, the Jews are probably the best of the three groups or the three I mentioned. They're not the best in the world. Uh, they're still a very patriarchal society, but women run the homes. Uh, women will be responsible for the education. They don't educate the kids, but they make the choices of who educates the kids. Uh, they can own property, which is different in, than in a Jewish or uh, Roman or in a Greek or Roman society. So, please understand. Yeah, but but remember the prayer that they pray, that the men pray. Right. Blessed are you, Lord thy God, King of the universe, who did not make me a Gentile, slave, or a woman. Yeah, or dog. Not not a slave, but a dog. Oh, sorry. Yeah, they hate dogs, but. Um, yeah, a woman, a Gentile, or a dog. Uh, women are generally seen as temptresses, Jezebels, uh, that kind of thing to get you in trouble. Um, uh, Delilahs, that kind of thing. So it was not great. What changes the role of women, changes the role of children, changes the role of slaves is Christianity. Nobody else has done it. Uh, they didn't do it in the East. They didn't do it in Africa. It's because of what we're talking about. So as much as this may sound strange to you, it was an earth-shattering, revolutionary, different way to treat people in general. So beginning with verse 18. Your wives must submit to your husbands, as is fitting for those who belong to the Lord. So again, not... Revolutionary in the first half of that, women are used to submitting to men in all of the cultures. But the reason for it and the approach to it is because they love God. They're doing these things out of service to God. Now, one of the biggest mistakes I think we make in studying scripture is that we cut it up in little bits and pieces and take it out of context and call it a devotional. So how many times have we just read verse 18? You wives must submit to your husbands as is fitting to those who belong to the Lord. Period. End. But there's verse 19. And you husbands must love your wives and never treat them harshly. Wait a minute. 
What is he putting responsibilities on us? We're the men. We're in charge. And you have to agape. Now, please remember the way agapos is used in Greek as they would have understood it, not as we interpret it. But it would mean that a husband has to choose every day to love his wife. I'm deciding that what is most important in my life is not my wife's political connections, not my wife taking care of my household, not my wife um, being my de facto slave, but I'm loving her because of my relationship with God and we hope the relationship that they have together. This was a big deal. So people like, like, oh, wives, you got to submit. Well, husbands have to choose to love their wives every day. And they cannot treat them harshly. Uh, You can't take a hand to them, as was common in Roman societies. One branch of Jewish uh, thought, this is the, the Pharisees, had simplified divorce in the... uh, ancient world so if you didn't like the, the Talmud says this if you didn't you came home one day and you didn't like the way the wife cooked your dinner all you had to do was say to her I divorce you I divorce you I divorce you and that's it out she didn't get the kids she didn't get anything they'll argue whether she gets a rid of divorce so she can get remarried but that's it um, Christianity is changing all of that you love her and you don't abuse her through divorce through physical matters, it's a big deal. You want to? You want to add? Are you okay? Once you finish, finish okay. through there, the, yeah. the, the the different pairings there, and so just note that if you just put a little tick mark by uh, nineteen twenty one and four one, just put a little tick mark there. The other verses in this section would be very expected. What makes what Paul's teaching here revolutionary is those verses, right? Right, uh, and we'll then I'll add some more that after you finish. Okay. So twenty, again expected here. Uh, you children must also obey your parents, and this is what pleases the Lord. So again, it's it's an understanding that we're going to have the, the, the typical social fabric. You do what your parents. This is a very ancient idea that wisdom is actually listening to your parents or your grandparents. Obedience is so important um, in the ancient world in terms of relationship. The whole idea of a family loving each other. Again, we think it's the most natural thing in the world. It's why we have families. That is because of Christianity. That is because of Paul interjecting the sense of love. Uh, You know, again, think about maybe your great-great-grandparents. Were they respected or were they loved? Not that the two have to be exclusive, but the the more ancient world... (laughs) Obeyed was was more important. Um, a couple three three months ago, um, so I have uh, two first generation Korean friends that live out in California, and uh, his name is one of one of one of the two. They're Ken and Jonathan are their names, and Ken and his wife Sunny they went to go visit her parents on Grandparents Day, and so when is Grandparents Day? Is that in September? Yeah, yeah, and so. Um, 
So they, you know, it's in California and it's still during COVID time. So they're outside and they're in these folding chairs and all of the grandchildren, guess what they're doing? They are laying prostrate in, prostrate in front of their grandparents as a way to show them honor. <laughs> and then the grandparents gave them money. <laughs> it got Americanized, right? How, it had all, all got twisted up. Yeah, but that 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 sense of of honor and respect in those honor shame cultures, which many Asian cultures are, is still very much alive. Paul is is adding this wrinkle, though he's done it twice here. That this is what pleases the Lord, and please understand how earth shattering this was. The gods that they had had up to this point didn't give up anything about people or what people do in their homes. Who cares? What you care about is do the people bring gifts to the gods? Do the people listen to the gods? Do the people follow their leaders, the the king or the emperor or the senate? That's what you want. Gods worked on a national level uh, or international when they went to war. You know, they were macro powers. Paul is changing it, and and it's coming from the Jewish root that what you do in life is spiritual. The way you treat your kids, the way you treat your wife, as kids, the way you treat your parents. You do that because of their relationship, because of your relationship with God. And it's, it's a whole reordering of society. Now, Steve and I talk about this a lot. It's frustrating to us that our society is sort of unraveling and we're going back to a world where we get everything we can. It's ours. We're going to fight and scream and holler in this whole lens of love that I do for another person an act of love, not because they deserve it or, or whatever, but because God says to do it. I mean, it's a different social fabric. Uh, we're not fighting. We're a family. We're, we're collected. So these are our roots, uh, these seeds that we can plant again. Paul virtually quotes the Old Testament here. Fathers, don't aggravate your children. If you do, they will become discouraged and quit trying. So there is a tenderness, again, that comes from Proverbs about don't make your kids crazy. Yes, you've got to raise them to be part of the real world, but don't destroy their souls. Don't crush them. Um, it's hard. Um, we, we think it's hard to live in our society today. I promise you it was worse in the first century. Um, remember, uh, Rome is, is an ever-present dictatorship. Uh, it's crushing the life out of everybody it can. And there's a civil war going on. Uh, Jews are desperately trying to throw out Rome, and it's affecting the entire world. Uh, this sort of radical zealot religion that the Jews had embraced to throw off Rome is spreading everywhere. And uh, there's riots in Alexandria. I mean, the world is a mess. So Paul's descriptions would seem naive, but we know they worked, and they changed the course of human history. Then we move to 22, and this really shocks us because we've removed this from our society because of Christianity, because we realized everybody does actually have value. They were created by God, and they have inalienable rights. But in the Roman world, not yet. You slaves must obey your earthly masters and everything you do. Try to please them all the time, 
not just when they are watching you. Obey them willingly because of your reverent fear of the Lord. Work hard and cheerfully at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember, the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward, and the master you are serving is Christ. Now, this is just crazy to our talk. If you're a slave, boy, you should fight for your freedom. You should get on a railroad or whatever we do and fight, kill, murder, get free. You Just fight for yourself. I don't think Scripture ever endorses slavery. But it does present this idea... You can live your life two ways. You can fight everybody for everything and see what you end up with. Or you can try to live in a society where we put our relationship with God at the forefront. And just because we can do some things in life doesn't mean we have to do them. We can choose for our relationship with God not to do certain things. It's mind-boggling, isn't it? In our society today, what restrains us? Nothing. If, if we want to do it. The consequences to some degree. Well, sure, yeah. But we, we tend to idolize people that overcome consequences, right? Um, Paul is introducing this hard concept that would seem strange to us. That just because you can do something, is it the good thing? You could fight, or you could find another way, a more peaceful, loving way. And you can understand that God sees everything. And the real justice and the real life that you want is probably not going to be had here on earth. It doesn't mean we don't struggle for good things or struggle for righteousness. But our ultimate judge, the ultimate fairness that we're looking for is in Christ. And if you do your job as if you worked for Jesus, irrespective of if you're a slave or whatever, you're going to do that job differently. Uh, That's what Paul was trying to to introduce for us. So verse 25, but if you do what is wrong, you will be paid back for the wrong you have done. For God has no favorites who can get away with evil. Now that's Nobody wants to hear that. I'm God's favorite, of course. Uh, everybody thinks that. The Jews think it. The Christians think it. The Muslims think it. God likes me. It's every child secretly thinks they're their parents' favorite, right? Unless you know you're not. But uh, we, all, we all hope. Uh, but no, God really wants good choices from everybody. He really wants us all to learn. So Paul is laying it out. Live your life as if you're doing it for God. Because in a real sense, you are. Now, I want to stress, even though this might seem like a tacit approval of slavery, it really isn't. And it will lead, I mean, again, where does the abolition movement come from? The church. The church. It wasn't civil society. It wasn't atheists. It wasn't the ACLU. It didn't exist. It was Christians that read, hmm, all people are creating the image of God. Maybe we should do something about that. And so long struggles, we've changed the role of women. We've changed the role of 
uh, people in general, and we change the role of children. Uh, they shouldn't be thrown out in fields to die because there are too many mouths to feed. They shouldn't be sold into slavery because there's too many mouths to feed. We should raise them and take care of them. Uh, yeah, it's certain that uh, many a slave owner back in the 1800s quoted uh, from this passage in Colossians to um, uphold their, their, their belief that they should maintain the right to own slaves. No doubt about it. But see, that's one of the big problems about reading Scripture out of context. Because one of the things that we're going to see is that the book of Colossians and the book of Philemon should be read together. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we'll see all the connections. And what in the book of Philemon, Paul, Paul basically says to Philemon, let your slave go. Let him go free. Did any slave owner ever quote the book of Philemon? And the answer is most likely not. Right? So got to read it all together. Yeah. And just as Steve said, you know, the context here, slave do this. And then look at chapter 4. You slave owners must be just and fair to your slaves. Just and fair? They're property. They're my slaves. From a Roman perspective, these are barbarians that we've conquered from the edge of the empire somewhere, like a crazy German or a crazy Englishman. They're not fit to bring in the house. They're not civilized. I don't need to treat them like anything. They're furniture. But Paul's saying, no, they're not. They're people. And you have to treat them kind, well, justly, fairly. Um, it's horrible to, uh, to think about, but one of the reasons uh, Rome has so many slaves is that many of them were sexual servants of their Roman masters. And there's absolutely no restrictions on any of that for Roman males. And so you have sort of a whole generation of uh, slaves being born to slaves. And once you're born into slavery, unless you earn your way out of it in Roman society, then you continue to be a slave. That's a child born to a slave that slept with a Roman would become property of the slave master, not the mother. So it, it's, it's a bad, bad system. And Paul is, again, doing what he did in all these other encounters. He's changing the relationship. It's not power. I'm a Roman. I have control over you. It's everybody. Remember that you also have a master in heaven. So everybody is answering to God. God cares the way you treat a slave. A Roman would have passed out. Um, hopefully a Jew would have remembered because they were slaves at one point themselves. Although Jews do own a lot of slaves in the ancient world. So um, I don't know how that went, but it surprises me. So you want to talk about Philemon? Yeah, or no, no? Okay. No, I want to talk about a couple of couple okay. things. Uh, so one of the things that Paul gets accused of in modern day is being a misogynistic pig. And, and it's true. I mean, whenever you stop there, wives submit to your husband. Who, who could say that besides somebody who's misogynistic? And uh, hopefully what you've seen tonight is it's, no, it's exactly the opposite is that, that Paul is speaking of the liberating power of the gospel. One of the things that we had this temptation to do when we pull back into to our story is to go just to the curse. 
And remember what God is saying to Eve. Your desire will be for your husband and you will rule over her. Now, if you take a step back a couple of more chapters, they were intended to rule over the earth together, right? And because of, because of this, this uh, seizing autonomy on their own terms, it was going to move into this place of the male dominating the female. Well, when the risen Christ comes on the scene, there in that passage that we read in Revelation, what does he say? Behold, I am making everything new. And so it's like what, what Paul is inviting these, these uh, Colossian Christians into is to live in to the, to the heaven that is already breaking in in their midst. To return back to life as it was in the goodness of the garden before Adam and Eve, Eve rebelled, right? That's the, that is the invitation that Jesus makes available to us through his death and resurrection. I am making all things new. And just think, as Pastor Kurt's been laying this out for us, it was the Christians slowly and deliberately over time that was affecting change in the culture. And that is the way it is intended to be. When we pray that prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are praying to God and asking God to allow the values of heaven to break into our lives and thus to break in to the culture. And where the the, the rubber is constantly meeting the road for followers of Jesus, are we persisting in allowing us to be shaped by the kingdom of God or are we allowing the voices of our culture to shape us? So sit with that for a second. We made the we made the point the, it, over the last couple of weeks, uh, whether it's in Bible study or in worship, that we are now living in a post-Christian culture. It seems apparent, right, that the church has been being shaped more shaped by the culture than the other way around. And we throw up our hands and we say, oh, my gosh, only if we could return back to 1950. That's when the highest percentage of church attendance was happening in our nation's history. 19. Oh, and we throw our hands up. But brothers and sisters, I want you to be inspired by what we've learned tonight. Because it is when Christians faithfully live into these realities of our relationships with one another that culture has changed. And we want it to be overnight. It's not going to be overnight. But brothers and sisters, we can turn the tide back again as we allow ourselves to be inspired. It talks about husbands and wives in this passage. And we're going to be learning more about this this summer during worship. But think about our marriages for those of us who are married in the room. That your marriage is intended to reflect out into our world the covenant relationship that we are to have with God. 
And so when you commit to submitting and to loving your spouses, that tells a story. That tells a story to a world, and we've, we've seen it, right? What are the millennials, one of the things that millennials are known for? Not being willing to do what? Commit. Get married. Right? So the, the and, and so, uh, so mate, this, is God committed to me? And whenever they see, whenever they see these marriages that mirror this covenant relationship that we have with each other, that tells a story to a lost world. Oh, maybe that's what our life with God is intended to be like. And then it talks about uh, parents and children. But this is a story to tell a story about how God is three in one, right? That he, he is at work in the world as a trinity seeking to redeem the world through families, right? And, and, the, and the, uh, the examples keep, can keep on going. The whole slave and master thing, Paul is, is, Paul free, or is Paul a free person or a slave? He's a Roman citizen, right? Free or slave? And he calls himself a slave. Yeah. He's right. in jail, so he's yeah, not he, free He's, at this he's time. in jail, yeah. but he calls him. And it's. Our, our, you just, Kurt and I constantly get frustrated in our translations because we are so. We, we still have been shaped by this uh, slave. Uh, because because of, of the because of our culture with in our our nation's history relative to slavery, we're so uncomfortable with that term. The Greek term for doulos is the the Greek term for slave, but it regularly gets translated servant. Mm-hmm. So in verse seven, we'll get to it in a minute. Tychicus uh, will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow slave. <laughs> And we always get it translated servant. It's doulos. It's the same word. Mm-hmm. Right? So Paul sees himself as a slave. And who is his master? God. Right? And so as he is having these conversations with slaves, as they, they live into this, this newfound value of the kingdom, Relationships between slaves and masters can also point to the relationship we are to have with God. Last thing. The Methodist movement, and we are kind of in this, uh, currently in this uh, struggle denominationally. And one of the things that's going to come out of this struggle over the next uh, few months is, uh, my goodness, why are we Methodist? What does it matter that we're Methodist? And is there something about the Methodist movement that we need to resurrect as we kind of move forward? One of the things, John Wesley was born 1792. Somewhere in there. You know, nope. It was the beginning nope. of the 18th nope, yeah, century. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. The beginning, 1703. Yeah. That's right. And he died about that. And you know what happened in 1790, like in Europe? That's when the French Revolution started. And you know what they were doing? They were like chopping people's heads off. It was violent. It was terrible. Mm -hmm. And as John Wesley 
had had his ministry through the 1700s in Europe. And Methodist uh, began with in a, in a very poor is a very is a movement of the poor, but it, it then spread to and so there's literally attorneys uh, sitting in the same room with coal miners confessing their sins to each other. Talk about radical, right? But John Wesley and the Methodists are credited with shifting culture so much. That the revolution that was sure to come to England, the same sort of revolution that was to come to England, where people are having their heads cut off, never came to England. Why? Because the Methodist showed a different way, this way of Colossians here, chapter 3, verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 1. Now that gets me fired up, right? That all is not lost in the midst of all of our struggle for us to be recentered on what made Methodist great in the first place can then be a means in which God transforms our city in a very real way. I truly believe that if you sat down with Paul tonight and you tried to describe our world to him, some things would not shock him. And some things would be unbelievable. He would not be able to comprehend what you're talking about. There is nothing vile, nothing overly sexualized, nothing about killing children that would shock him. In fact, Rome did it bigger and better than we ever did. Uh, They were uh, hypersexual killing kids right and left, violent. So we couldn't shock Paul and how bad our world is. But if you said to him, we live in a republic where women vote, and actually there's more women voters than men, and there's no slavery in our world, he couldn't comprehend it. No way. These conditions had never existed on the face of the earth. Slavery is as old as humanity. The treatment of women equally as old he would say it's impossible and yet Christianity did it and hopefully we can preserve it or continue to do it Right. So, questions, here we go Nate's coming Daniel is out tonight but Nate's on the move Tom So even with all the, these are some challenging scriptures. Yeah. I think they consistently go back to the things we've studied here and that you guys have been working on our sermon series. It is relationship overcomes manipulation. Come on. Because that, that the, the manipulation that, whether it's in our culture right now or talking about 2,000 years ago, that pushed people apart and pushed people apart you know, you have to do this because I say or because I did this certain way, this God must do this. Instead, he just keeps us telling us about relationship and that's that's what you're speaking to. That's right. Yep. A healthy healthy relationship. Yeah. Very good. Any other questions? Because we're fixing to hit the gas. Oh, Richard, go ahead. Was the death of children then 
surpass the death of slash abortion of children out? No. Because our populations are so much larger. But um, per capita. Per capita. I still don't think so because we do it on an industrial scale. It, really, we do. Um, 63 million children have died since we legalized Roe versus Way. That's more lives than all our wars combined that we've lost in terms of soldiers. 63 million. That's staggering. I don't think Rome, Greece, Canaan, any of them could approach that. So it's, it's a hard realization about the reality of our country. But maybe it's changing. So. All right. Let's, let's hit the gas. We need to talk all the way down in verse 8 before we, we let you go tonight. Uh, Steve referred to this, but we need to show it to you. Uh, so uh, Paul is, is talking about the, the guy who wrote the letter, and he's sending him on a special trip to give you the letter. But he, he's well, wondering. We, we, we skipped over chapter verse two and verse six. Are you skipping on purpose? Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, until <laughs> we get to Onesimus. <laughs> okay. So. <laughs> Go ahead. So we need to introduce this guy to you named Onesimus. And yeah, Onesimus. He's in verse nine. I'm sorry. I'm also sending Onesimus, a faithful and much beloved brother. One of your own. So very important to hear Paul's description of this guy. He is faithful. Um, He's a much-loved brother and one of your own. What Paul does not describe him as is a slave. We've talked a lot about the fact that uh, the church ends up with a lot of different kind of people sitting next to each other, becoming brothers and sisters in the church. Uh, so you have the very, very wealthy. And in fact, we're going to be introduced to one of the very wealthy in just a second who owns this guy. Um, you have Romans. You know, I badmouth them, but a lot of Romans were uh, accepting Christianity. High uh, patricians, I mean, lords of the land except in Christianity. Uh, You have a lot of Greeks that are doing it. You have a lot of very wealthy women, and by that, I mean, they're widows, and so they have their husband's fortunes, and they're giving it to the church. There's a lot of women that lead early, especially in the Gentile side of the church. It's fascinating. You have a lot of craftsmen, and lest we ever forget, you have a lot of Jews, a lot of Jews. In fact, that's almost always the core that starts. Uh, They don't disappear. They don't run off and go to the synagogue. They're, They're that core, and Paul seems to go back and forth. I mean, he's talking to Jews, he's talking to Christians, it's the church. Uh, so you have all this mix, and you have slaves. How do you sit down and have communion with your slave? I mean, it's, it's a whole different kind of relationship that ultimately leads to what Paul says. You should let them go. You should free them. They're your brother. Uh, in the eyes of God, in the eyes of church, Onesimus is not the slave of Philemon. He is his brother. So there is a secret hidden book in the Bible. I promise, well, I guess you've never seen it before. The letter of Philemon. Can you find it? It's always been in your Bible. It's a little hidden gem. Uh, this is what makes you a true biblical scholar. To be able to find the letter of Philemon. 
right there. <laughs> it's, it's just a little, one little page, so you can't flip by it. I think Marie's going to help us get there. Well, if you, if, you go to, if you got to Hebrews, you went too far. Mm. All right? It's right before the book of Hebrews. So you want to take us through that real quick, or let me do it? Yeah. Well, so, again, Philemon... Uh, Philemon is not mentioned in the book of Colossians, but it's pretty clear what has happened that uh, Tychicus, as he brings the, the letter, uh, it, it, would be, it would be interesting to know for sure how all this played out. Um, Tychicus brings the letter, he reads the letter to the church in Colossae. It's pretty clear that Philemon is actually host, hosts a church in Colossae as well. So if you'll, if in verse uh, one of, of uh, excuse me, verse two of, I'll just read verses one and two of Philemon. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Epipha, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. And let me just say, uh, to own land is rare. To own a home, rarer. To own a home that's more than one room, you're getting very rarefied society. And to own one that potentially a dozen, 20, 30, 40 people could meet, you're, you're super wealthy. Uh, you're, you're entering this class of patrician. Uh, we know of two in Colossae that are able to do this. So when they say the church is meeting in your home, these are billionaires in our, in our parlance today. Yeah, and so read read the whole book of Philemon tonight when you get home. But if you'll just go down to verse uh, eight, uh, therefore, this is Paul writing. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. Uh, we've heard about love in Colossae, right? In the, in the letter to the Colossians, right? Yeah, um, it is none other than Paul. It, it is as n- none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He's a prisoner in Colossae. So it's, it's, it's almost as if, I'm almost sure that when Tychicus brings the letter to uh, read to the Colossians, he also has in his back pocket this letter to Philemon. Mm-hmm. I think it's coming at the same time. And he probably also has in his back pocket the letter to the Laodiceans, which has been lost. I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus. Yeah, we should explain real quick. Onesimus was a slave and he ran away. There's some indication he may have taken something. It's, it's kind of nebulous, but if he's trying to survive, maybe you know he had to take some money to try to make it. But so he runs away and eventually ends up with Paul. Paul ministers to him, takes care of him, and then says, you've got to go back right. to your master and make it right. So Paul is sending Onesimus back, or yeah, back to Philemon. And again, that's an awkward conversation, right? Uh, so that's what would be curious, Kurt, is whenever... Tychicus is Onesimus around? Probably not. Right. But when he reads verse 9, he is coming with Onesimus. <gasps> yeah. I mean, it's like, because they would have known the story that Onesimus was a runaway slave of uh, Philemon. 
And so you're starting to kind of catch the weight of all that is happening when you pull all this together. That Paul is appealing to love to free this slave that was in deep, deep trouble. Because, you wanna, yeah. What did Romans do to runaway slaves? Uh, or come, come really close. They had to make public examples out of them because Rome is always fearful of a slave revolt. Remember, two-thirds of the population of the Roman Empire are slaves. And if they ever wake up and all revolt, it's going to be like Spartacus early in Roman's history where the slaves did revolt and it just about took over Rome. So by Roman law, you have to discipline your slaves. So if you didn't kill them, you, you gave them a severe beating to never... Think of this again. And Paul is changing all of that. He's a brother. He's a member of Christ. He's coming back to make it right, and you need to make it right with him. Yeah, yeah. That you need to, it's like this invitation to Philemon. It's time to allow the kingdom of God to fully and completely break into your heart and to see Onesimus the way I, Paul, see him, and that you, see, that you should now see him, not as a runaway slave, but as your brother. Right, and um, so before any time you hear somebody bad mouthing Paul as a misogynistic jerk or whatever, he was just a jerk. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Kurt says that I don't say. It. I do. I do. <laughs> and so, just to be clear, Kurt and I disagree on certain things, and that's one of the no. Uh, but yeah, that it's it's actually the exact opposite. The arc of scripture, like slavery is never affirmed, but the reality of slavery is there. But by the time you are getting to the end of the book, at the end of the scripture, here in Philemon, it is the arc of scripture is that is not God's design for humanity, right? Which is certainly how uh, the abolitionists in our country, uh, rooted in scripture, uh, made their case. And what a beautiful thing, thing that they did. Yeah, look at verse 16. Paul sort of summing this up for us. We're talking about Onesimus. He is no longer just a slave. He is a beloved brother, especially to me. Now he will mean much more to you, both as a slave and as a brother in the Lord. Uh, wow. Um, you know, Paul is probably, in this church, the most revered figure they've ever heard of. Uh, he is... Uh, someone that saw the resurrected Christ. He is an apostle. There's not many left. And that he has vouched for this runaway slave and said that he has a special meaning to me. Wow. The, The kingdom of God is so different than the kingdom of the world. So... We have to believe that the relationship changed when Onesimus came back and met Philemon and they realized they were brothers in the church. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? What are your questions? Yes. Oh, there's coming over the mic. So the view is slavery during that time is just kind of anybody's luck instead of yes. kind of like what we think of slavery. It's a very important distinction. Right. It is, is you're one battle away from your family becoming part of slavery. So it would have been a little bit different than... Sure. You know, Chattel yes. slavery. Yeah. Yes. It wasn't based on your race. Anybody could be a slave. There were Greek slaves, Roman slaves, Egyptian slaves, German slaves. Uh, yeah. And about two-thirds 
Yeah, they, sociologists are saying two-thirds of the Roman Empire. I mean, it's a staggering number. Um, so so it, with that model of society, I mean, it wasn't a, a very good model because of, of the same, uh, having that many slaves, you, you would, that's not a good way to uh, create a happy society or a, or a good society. I mean, it didn't really work. It wasn't right. working then, and Christianity kind of fixed that. And now we're kind of away from, you know, in a different society because of it. Yes, for sure. For sure. No, that, that's... Yeah, that's a great observation. Yes, for yeah. sure. Um, you know, Rome was always built on such violence, and when Rome couldn't focus that violence, then in a sense all the slaves rose up and tore it apart, whether it be the Germans or the Vandals, the Goths, you know, various tribes. So, yeah. Uh, we're good. Pave, did you have a question? Hold on. Nate can make the run over. He is... <laughs> Poor Nate. He needs a steps in today. I was just wondering if um, Colossians already knew Onesimus was with Paul, if that's the kind of rumor or story that might have gotten back to them, or is this like a total surprise? That's a good question. Great question. It, it seems that... So we, we, know, we know what happened is, is that Onesimus ran away, and he finds Paul. Paul is in prison, and that's where he connects with Onesimus there. And so I'm sure he hear, hears the sto- learns of the story is Onesimus is kind of... You remember... Whenever you were in a Roman jail, you didn't depend on the Romans to take care of you. You had to depend on, on your family members. And that's why he calls him his son, uh, that kind of thing. And so, it's, but as he learns his story, Paul is like, we're going to make this right. And we're going to make this right by sending you back. Can you imagine how scared Onesimus was to go back to Philemon? And we don't know how, how it worked out. We, we would hope the way Paul kind of talk about manipulation. <laughs> Whenever you read Philemon, there's some manipulation kind of written into Paul's language. Because, but it's not really manipulative because Paul is convinced that this is the way of the kingdom of God. That freedom is the way of the kingdom. Right. That's right. Yeah. Very good. It's funny. Paul says, Onesimus was a worthless slave. I know he was. <laughs> so, again, that jerkness comes out. Yeah, I know he's a jerk, but he's better now. I fixed him. So, um, you got to love Paul. All right. We got to finish to the end. What do you want to finish with? Verse 10. We can just read through this real quick and okay. just make some comments. Uh, my fellow prisoner, Asterikos, <laughs> sends you his greeting as does Mark. This is the Mark that wrote the Gospel of Mark. Um, the cousin so, of Barnabas. Yeah, just real quick because yeah, we're out of time. Good. Remember, there was a huge argument between Mark, who had been a child, a teenager, that had followed Jesus. No small dispute. No, exactly. <laughs> uh, again, this kid had grown up with Jesus. He was there the night Jesus was arrested. He wrote the Gospel of Mark. We call him John Mark, which is a misnomer. So he has a Hebrew name, Johannes, Yotan, and then he has a Greek name, uh, or Roman name, Marcus. So it's that same person. But he goes to travel with Paul. 
and they have a knockdown drag out. Um, they have to separate. Um, Mark ends up leaving. You know, Paul says, you're nothing. You never amount to anything. You brat. You know, what do you know? And you can see Mark saying, you didn't never even met Jesus. You, you've never spent a day with him. Who are you? So Mark, because Paul was going after the Gentiles and Mark had never seen Jesus do that, right? He had ministered to the Jews. But whatever the case, they've made up. And that's, that's important. We do have fights in the church, but I think when we really have the kind of relationship the kingdom defines, we get it worked out. Yeah. Um, so just mentioning his name in here, if you know what's happened in, uh, in the history of the church, it's like, wow. Wow. People who grew to hate each other for a season grew to love each other again. Mm-hmm. Man. You have instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Uh, Jesus, who is called Justice. This is the only time this person is mentioned, so we really don't know anything else about him. Also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. So that's kind of how he orders his his greetings. This is typical of a Roman letter that you send greetings at the, at the end. And so, so now he turns to his Gentile uh, co-workers. Epaphras, remember Epaphras is the one who brought the gospel to the Colossians in the first place. Uh, he was in Ephesus with Paul. He made that short trip over. He, he preached the gospel to them and then they begin to accept Jesus and to follow him. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Remember, those are the three towns that are really close to one another. Um, Laodicea gets mentioned in the uh, book of... Revelation. Revelation. For me, it's always the book of Revelation, right? Yeah, the book of Revelation. That's the, right? He is about to spit them out of their mouth. (laughs) Our friend Luke, the doctor, we know about Luke, uh, who wrote the gospel of Luke. So it's interesting. In these greetings, Paul is claiming firsthand relationship with the writer of the book of Mark and the writer of the book of Luke. That's really cool, right? And Demas, uh, Demas. If you if you read uh, Demas, uh, Demas, how how we pronounce it, Kurt? Yeah, I think Demas. Demas, um, Demas was a companion of Paul. Later on, Demas abandons Paul. Very tragic story, and you can read about that story in Second Timothy four ten. So a second person that traveled with Paul and decided he's a jerk. So. <laughs> And he's not the only one. (laughs) According to Paul, he fell in love with the ways of the world. And that is why he fell away. Uh (laughs) I believe him once. I don't believe him twice. (laughs) I'm just teasing. (laughs) I I try to get serious here and then just jeez. All right. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea. I think that's really cool that as young as this church was, 
they were already making sure that they were staying connected with the church that on the 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 church or churches in the next town over it's like this connection was important then right and um and, and so Paul is Paul is encouraging them to know each other. Um, give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and to the church uh, in her house. Wait a second. I didn't think women could lead churches. Yeah. Uh, and again, what does that say about her socioeconomic status? Right. I mean, she's super, super wealthy. Super wealthy. It's, yeah. After this letter, Colossians, has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church at the Laodiceans, and that you, in turn, read the letter from the Laodiceans. So it's very likely, again, that there's three letters that Tychicus, Tychicus, is carrying. I mean, just think of all that value consolidated into these three letters. Uh, that it would have, would have, it was just a huge expense, and so that's why the the, uh, the trading go, goes back and forth. So again, if the letter to the Laodiceans turns up, and it can be verified as original, our Bibles will change. Mm-hmm. And won't that be an exciting day? It'd be really cool. Tell Archippus. See that you complete the ministry you have received in the Lord. And, um, golly, I can't. Where do we decide that Archippus was also mentioned? You remember? In Acts. In Acts, that's right. Um, and then I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. So Tychicus or somebody else had been, been, uh, been writing this letter as he had been dictating it. But here at the end, he's. Give me the pen. I got something important to tell you. Please take it. (laughs) (laughs) So Paul tends to do this for most of his letters. He'll, instead of just signing it, he he writes in his own hand. And for some reason, he seems to write larger than is normal. So we speculate, was he trying to deal with forgeries? You know, people saying they were letters from Paul, and he puts this really big signature to prove, like, my John Hancock is much bigger. Uh, Some people say maybe he has an eyesight problem. Uh, and that that's why he's writing big. Uh, we don't know. We just know that he did it. Or and, he's a jerk. Well, So he writes big. Could be he's a jerk. He, he doesn't this, believe his own rhetoric. The, the, this is why I think he's a jerk. Here's what he says. Here is my greeting in my own hand, Paul. Remember my chains. Oh, you big drama queen. How many times do you have to tell us you're in prison? We got it. Oh, it's horrible. I'm in jail. It's like, oh, get over yourself. But then he, he gets it back together. Yeah. And he says, may the grace of God be with you. So um, thank you for writing. You're in chains again, Paul. <laughs> and that, my friends, is the book of Colossians. <laughs> One more question for the good of the group. Were there any mixed marriages at this point? Yes. Yes. Timothy, who is another son of Paul, adopted son. His mother is Jewish and his father was Gentile. So it it, it is happening. Um, 
Yes, yes. Uh, you know, Roman society, for all of its its ugliness, doesn't have the kind of racial stuff that we develop later on. I mean, Romans will marry just about anybody. Jews are a little more restrictive, but you still see it. Um, you know, Jews marrying Egyptians, Jews marrying Greeks. So, yeah. Better pray us out, Kurt. We're already late. All right, we'll pray. Father God, we give you thanks that you really know us as humans. You can look into a world that we have made a hot mess, a world where we overemphasize the wrong things and ignore the good things, a world full of violence and corruption. And you can plant a seed of righteousness, of love, of beauty. When our hearts want to say, God, that's not possible, we can open your word and see it's not only possible, but it's been done before. So help us. Father God, we do feel like our world is coming apart at the seams. We've seen plagues. We see wars. We see our country riven in two. 